Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Yeah, I Got an Effing Job with a Liberal Arts Degree. My name is Jeff Crane, and as well as being an alum of a liberal arts college, the Evergreen State College, I am an environmental historian and have been a higher education administrator for the past 11 years. Yeah, I Got an Effing Job with a Liberal Arts Degree is a show that explores a liberal arts as an educational system emphasizing inquiry, personal development, and innovation that is foundational to a healthy, inclusive, and progressive society. On the show, I will be hosting a wide range of guests whose experiences as students of the liberal arts have shaped their lives in school, as professionals, and in their lives outside of their careers. At a moment in time when educational leaders, institutions, and systems, particularly in the liberal arts, are increasingly maligned for political reasons, leading to ongoing enrollment declines in these fields, this show offers a collection of thoughtful firsthand accounts of the liberal arts while also contemplating the future of higher education as a path to an expansive and eclectic life experience. Moreover, we will explore the role of the liberal arts in preparing students and society for an increasingly precarious world. My first guest is Eric Riggs, the Dean of Cal Poly Humboldt's College of Natural Resources and Sciences. He is an excellent example of the well-rounded individual with sharp analytical skills and innovative thinking that results from a liberal arts education. As it turns out, his first degree was as an English major. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and share with other people who care about and are invested in higher education and the liberal arts. We are talking today with Eric Riggs. He's the Dean for the College of Natural Resources and Sciences at Cal Poly Humboldt University in uh, beautiful Arcata, California. And uh, we work together, as it turns out. I've been working with uh, Eric for about a year and seven months now. It's been a delight. He's a man with a lot of varied interests and backgrounds, hopefully some of which we'll get to explore today. But I'd like you to start off, Eric, by um, just telling us about your, you know, your academic journey, your background in academics, and how you arrived at your position today. Okay, that's a uh, good, good day, Jeff. Uh, that's a <laughs> that's a long. How long do we have? That's a long story. Well, the abbreviated version. The abbreviated version. Okay. Yeah. Well, so to cut to the chase, I'm a I'm a geologist uh, by formal training, but that's I didn't start off born with a rock hammer in my hand. Um, I have, uh, I, I actually did most of my career doing science education research in the geosciences. So did a little bit of both self-taught in sort of the social sciences as well as educational research um, and have had most of my professorial career that way. Um, prior to that, though, um, I, I worked in the real world and before that was an English major. So graduated with a bachelor's degree in English like most geologists don't. Um, so it, it was a, it, it's been a long and winding path. I'm sure we can get into some of the details, but uh, it's been a good one so far and I'm not done. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, prior to our starting here, you mentioned uh, bridge programs working with Native American youth. Will you yep. speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So some of the early programs, um, actually what tilted me off the path of straight geoscience and into more of the uh, application of science and society was um, at in graduate school, ended up hanging out with historians, um, especially uh, Native American historians, one, one of whom I later married. Um, and uh, er, early on, uh, we got into discussions. Uh, this, this was in the days when um, geology and environmental science were tumbling across this idea of earth system science and really expressly connecting all of the interconnected systems on earth. And um, including humans in that mix. And um, you know, her comment to me was, 
well, where are native people in this science then? <laughs> why, why is this such a, how come it is not a field dominated by indigenous people? We have to do that in history too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, it was a, it was a good moment. I was, I don't know. Um, and so I went to one of the major, uh, geoscience conferences presenting my own science. And I saw a presentation, um, by a program officer from the National Science Foundation advertising a brand new program that they had started calling, calling awards to facilitate geoscience education. And I immediately had this idea. It's like, oh my goodness, we should apply to this. I was a grad student. I figured, how do I apply for a grant from the National Science Foundation? I don't know. But uh, we figured it out. Um, we got the right signatures from the university. We applied for a whopping $25,000 grant, which we assumed was more money than there was on the face of the earth. Um, and right. I, I knew from my advisor that, you know, when you get an award notice, you should at least negotiate with the program officer because they're probably going to be trying to bring your budget down. And oh. so I asked, I said, okay, so how, how much of this budget might we get? And um, he said, well, all of it, <laughs> you know, because um, it was a microscopic grant. And of course, I had no yeah. idea what I was talking about. Um, anyway, what we did with that money is we launched a set of conferences where we brought um, representatives from local tribal communities around Riverside, California, so all over Southern California area and into Arizona um, to campus to in a series of three conferences where also had scientists there really just to talk about things like worldview, your perspective on this landscape. Uh, what you see when you look at these rocks and these places. Um, and then we moved it more into how one educates people about those things. And then finally, kind of more into the economics of uh, how, how one approaches industries or activity science on the, on these landscapes. And it launched an entire arc of my career, actually, that got me engaged with Native communities and in uh, addressing really uh, educational needs. There's rich uh, you know, traditional knowledge, there's rich indigenous knowledge in communities, but they're all often forced as stewards of large land bases to act as environmental agencies unto themselves, interacting with significantly uh, larger and more professional organizations like water districts, county governments, state governments, the federal government, Caltrans, and, Caltrans, <laughs> and uh, yes, and you know, as a as a student of history yourself, you know that those interactions often don't go well for tribes, right. um, and so I, at that point, it became a, a bit of a mission for me to find a way to bring earth science into those communities in a way to enhance scientific sovereignty and data sovereignty, and to strengthen um, the internal resources of communities like that, and ultimately to put external consultants or external academics onto the back burner as people they could consult if necessary. But no, frankly, we're good. It was all about self-determination and building that strength. And I knew, and it is, still remains to be a very long road. But, mm. um, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, group that we saw yesterday actually were people I had originally started to partner in that work with, um, tribal members who were very good at running youth programs and had lots of connections into various communities up and down the state. Right. And um, I brought the science. They brought the culture. And... We, we went off to the races for three subsequent NSF awards worth of work and across my path across a couple of different universities. And uh, it, that program persists. It, uh, it, we started something sustainable, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. So it was really cool to hang out with that group, tour them around this campus, um, go out into the woods, look at some you know, tide pools, rocks. It right. was awesome. Before you even came here. Right. right. Yeah. That's very impressive. And I think great background for your role here. Yeah. The values of the institution. Indeed. Yeah. I, my first time at this institution was doing one of those trips back in probably 2012. 
Um, I'd been to this region uh, as a geologist, studying some of the really unique geology up here prior to that. But uh, first came here into the region, probably about two, we were thinking about it yesterday, actually, 2006, 2007, probably. Um, and then to this campus. And yeah, there was a picture taken in front of the then Humboldt State University gates that uh, my colleague sent to me when I accepted this job. And oh, he said, nice. here you go. There's yeah. your foreshadowing picture. <laughs> and so it hangs today on my wall. And it's right. just a reminder of this is why you came here. Um, right. And I, I do believe in this institution for those reasons. Um, right. We have, um, and I think it is potentially um, a phenomenal place for all native students to all indigenous students, frankly, minoritized students, any students really. But I mean, if you can really work to students that um, have specific uh, societal and cultural needs and applications for these skills, um, then come on down. I think yeah. you know that that's how we should distinguish ourselves as a polytechnic. So that's we got to get you on the road recruiting. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, one one interesting tidbit I want to make sure we include. Rumor yeah. has it you've jumped out of airplanes a few times. A couple, yeah. How many jumps? <laughs> Two hundred and twenty-four. Yeah, uh, all successful. No, yes, <laughs> never, haven't killed me yet. Um, no, and then I, I I did all that before graduate school and before I had kids uh, and all yeah. that, and I went to graduate school and ran out of time and money all at once. Yeah, um, sure. so ultimately sold my gear and uh, just yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fun so, fact. Um, tell us a bit about your role as the dean of CNRS and some of the what what you do in that mm. in that position. Sure, sure. Um, I'm still learning that. Uh, chief cook and bottle washer, uh, professional shoulder to cry on occasionally. Sometimes bad guy. Um, uh, yeah, um, coach, uh, provocateur, um, <laughs> steerer of academic goodness, provider of resources, um, manager of budgets, manager of budgets. Oh, yay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I actually fortunately am blessed enough to have people in my, on my team who handle more of the day to day on those things. Occasionally, as you know, I mean, you have the same role, but, um, we've got to stick our nose directly into budget issues and directly into course sections, but I'm really happy to have built over the last two years, a really solid team of people who I trust to do that, those kinds of things more. And they report to me and I love the work they do and your I'll support chairs, them. Your chairs are fantastic. Associate Dean, budget analysts, which frees me to do a lot of the things that the university has also asked of me in this role, especially in CNRS. And I mean, you have, you have some, um, you, you have some duties in this area too, and that's re reaching out into the community, especially all of the you know monumental changes that are coming to this region in terms of investment in offshore wind, investment in microgrids, uh, aquaculture, um, sea level rise preparations, uh, you know, climate resilience, all, all these things. Important topics. Um, yeah, <laughs> sustainable forestry, food systems. I mean, all this stuff pivots on the sciences and also the interaction with society and history and all the rest. And so um, being uh, freed to um, act, you know, act as an agent of the university in those spaces um, has been very good. I, I, you know, prior to going back to graduate school, I did some time out in the professional world just working for a living and bringing some of those skills along. And I also have interacted uh, as a scientist with many congressional science visits and things like that at former institutions. So being able to bring those skills forward for this university, I think is, is important in this seat. 
And so um, I'm very happy the provost saw fit to provide an extra associate dean to CNRS, largely because of our size and complexity, but also in order to enable the university to take advantage of the scientifically and engineering focused opportunities coming our way. Frankly, I don't know how you deal with just two associate deans. I mean, you're such a complex college, so much going on and all the new programs you've had to stand up. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sleep is optional. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) So um, our listeners will find it interesting to know, as I did, that your first major was in English. And yes. I, I tease you every once in a while over how erudite you are and the references and, you make. But, and, um, and, and it is not a soft skill. No. And thank you for that. <laughs> yes, go ahead and say that right now. Uh, never say liberal arts are for soft skills to me unless you can see my mean face. There, um, was, there was nothing soft about it. Yeah. <laughs> it was and, hard to do. So I'd like you to talk a bit about um, the, maybe what, what, why you decided to do English when sure. you were a young student in college sure. and uh, just kind of go from there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to lay the groundwork a bit, you know, the, all these, all these things, you know, have family of origin pieces to them, right? My father is a PhD in uh, analytical chemistry, um, had, did his whole career as a lab manager and then ultimately sales manager, then ultimately VP general manager of pieces of um, scientific companies. Um, my mom uh, finished a microbiology degree and then pivoted into information technology later. And so I have very technically minded parents that always tried to instill in me a love of the arts and of reading. Um, and at 17 years old, I was a whole lot less pleasant as an individual than I am today, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, especially I did not get along well with my dad at that interval in time. And there were some uh, very awkward family things going on with my mom and when I got to college on the other side, I, I had escaped back to California from a, a brief hiatus in Minneapolis and uh, came back to L.A., uh, arrived at Pomona College, took my first chemistry course, got my got an A on my first college chemistry exam, figured, yeah, I'm crushing it. And F you, dad. Um, so I dropped chemistry. <laughs> I uh, some switched, stuff switched gears into uh, <laughs> an English major. And um, yeah. And, and so then, you know, did kind of a self-styled, I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to do a science writing, science communications type major. And I, I, that didn't materialize. I also got sucked into the campus radio station. So I developed a, a love for that kind of communication in real time. This, this type of modality, I think is a fantastic way to communicate. Um, and ended up pursuing a path through uh, English that was really more focused on literary criticism and understanding uh, cultural influences on literature and on communication. And, um, yeah, then dropped off the end of that degree and into unemployment. <laughs> I didn't, I, nobody counseled me that it's like, oh, I have to look for a job. <laughs> I, mean, I had had jobs in high school. It's just I don't know why I hadn't put two and two together. Uh, to, and, uh, you know, opened the diploma case and there's no offer letter in there. It's like, what? <laughs> um, so after couch surfing for a little while with a friend, um, I got a job at a marketing consulting firm. And that was a real eye-opening experience. Uh, we ghost wrote a number of business articles for large business banks, for law firms, for other manufacturers. We, we wrote a lot of their newsletters and other things that they would send out to make them look very smart. Um, and so I got to talk to a lot of people, learned the business world from the inside out, and also oddly um, learned the printing business because we had to print a lot of this material and we did a lot of their marketing materials, many of which were printed. So I... I actually even took a printing estimating course at Pasadena City College and learned the insides of the printing industry, liked it enough that I and disliked marketing consulting enough that after a little while, I just decided to go work for one of our suppliers. And um, 
excuse me, and then and then dove into the printing industry as a commercial um, commissioned salesperson, yeah. working the business landscape of Los Angeles, and ended up working with a lot of graphic designers, ad agencies, uh, manufacturers. Um, spent my time roaming around the LA basin writ large, um, selling commercial printing jobs for a while. Um, and that I was then eventually offered, um, a position. I got successful. I was offered a position at a bigger company. I would have had to move to the Bay area. I didn't feel like moving to the Bay area at the time. So, and I had gotten kind of a wild hair also at hanging out with friends, realizing I wanted to do something more. There was something missing. Um, I was in Los Angeles in the 90s. There was a number of earthquakes in Los Angeles in the 90s. And so um, I ended up paying closer attention to that and went back to my alma mater, went to their career counseling center, took some of the strong interest career surveys and things like that, did all those that whole battery of tests and out popped geologist, architect, military officer. It's like, OK, well, I think maybe the military ship has sailed for me. Um and I don't, didn't really fancy myself a good enough artist to be an architect, but the geology thing stuck in there somewhere. And I, I remember distinctly a conversation with a friend of mine um, on the back porch of her house drinking white wine or something like this on a hot day. She said, well, why don't you just cruise over to Pasadena City College, take an evening course in geology. It'll cost you a few bucks and check it out. See if you like it. And said, yeah, good idea. So I stepped into this classroom. Turns out Pasadena City College has one of the best junior college geology programs in the nation <laughs> I mean, by accident, right? They also they also get a lot of faculty that kind of come spilling over from Caltech. Um, so the proximity matters. Um, and yeah, got sucked in. And sure enough, uh, like something like four years later, that was actually also the very first geology class I ever taught it was in the same oh, room, nice. same section. Nice. Um, and yeah, so I, I told that story to those students on that day. Cause there's, you know, and, and since then I've also been a huge fan of community colleges as a way to mm -hmm. re-enter school. Mm -hmm. I, I see it as a career changing pathway. And I, I'm, it's another thing I like about this institution is how much we do for transfer students and we're leaning into doing more. So yeah, it, it's all kind of twisted together, but that's the, that's the long version of the story. Lots yeah. to, lots to edit out of that for. Yeah. Well, I did a year, I did a year in Jimmy, uh, Shoreline community college, loved it. And, uh, exactly what I needed, mm -hmm. um, transitioning out of the military and being first generation college student. And I took geolo two geology classes, which I just absolutely loved. I could not stop talking about sills and dikes and synoliths and synclines and anticlines. And mostly I don't know what those words mean anymore, but um, it is fascinating, right? It's good it's stuff. It's been useful for me in my own career as an environmental historian. Mm. Um, but I want to go back a little bit and pull on a couple of threads. Uh, one, since you mentioned the ball and stuff. Um, yes, ball of yarn. Yeah. So talk to me. So you were building a successful industry in the printing industry, a career right. in yep. the printing industry. Yep. How did the English major, your undergraduate education help you for that? How did that prepare you and ah, support you? That, that was... Yeah, that was an easy one because um, I, at least the English program I was in um, also put an emphasis on um, at Pomona College. They have the Bacon Library, which has some really amazingly old folios and you start to see the value of the printed word as well as I mean, in a digital in a digital universe, um, and I'm a great appreciation appreciator of, of digital words. But you know, there's something magical about holding a printed volume. <laughs> Such a really old one. Yes, exactly. And so that that was always a draw. And um, the the time in 
the marketing consulting world, I was doing a lot of writing. I mean, you know, writing synthesizer, it was very journalistic kind of work. And so, and I was in the school newspaper when I was in high school also. So okay. um, writing and, and, and reading always came naturally. My SAT scores actually coming out of high school were even. Okay. Quantitative and qualitative. So it- uh, I weren't. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, so it was it was an opportunity to exercise all those skills, and um, you know, sales work. I mean, there's the there's the cheesy sleazy version of sales, you know, and then there's the actual professional business relationship of sales, which is about relationship management, communication, uh, contracts, and other kind, and understanding where somebody is, what they need. I think that's really the fundamental piece is understanding someone's positionality. If you can serve that need, then they will work with you. And that's something I think studies of literature actually um, prime you to do well and to think automatically about putting yourself in someone else's place. um, I especially was lucky to, um, I walked into a terrible advising situation there. Um, I'm sure Pomona is much better at it these days, but the only class I could get into as a freshman was the drama of the British Renaissance <laughs> as a junior level course. Oh, yeah. And so I dove straight in, you know, to, um, you know, Johnson and Marlowe and Shakespeare and all the rest of that, but then ended up taking four more courses in drama as literature. And so that was, that, that really also helped emphasize this notion of understanding what it means to be in someone else's position and, right. and how they would act and communicate and why they would say something. Uh, it's been a useful skill set to the current day. So let's follow that through a little yeah. bit because it's certainly when I talk about the value of liberal arts, which is the focus of this uh, podcast, one of the things I say in, in regards to like English, mm-hmm. but also the study of history mm-hmm. uh, and other disciplines is it, um, I think you phrase it very well, it lets us get in other people's shoes, but it also um, allows sort of heightened uh, empathy mm-hmm. and seeing things from different perspectives. Is, is this what you're essentially saying? Is it still true for you today in your role as a dean? Absolutely. Um, I try to get better at that all the time. I think um, it's the source of a lot of conflicts within and without universities is just this notion of people not, they're kind of speaking past each other. Um, that's why some political discourse sometimes can get very annoying when people want to boil it down to just surficial comments that can be captured on a bumper sticker. Um, that that's not communication. That's just shouting. And, um, I think understanding, you know, having longer enough communications, deep enough communications to understand why somebody's taking the position they are, how they feel the way they do, um, is, I think it's one thing that the liberal arts emphasize. I mean, that's what, uh, that's what drama is all about, right? Is being able to sort of inhabit someone else's character right. and understand motivation and all the rest and literature it is the same and playing with different perspectives, playing with phrasing, um, meaning, subjectivity, uh, all these things are, are central to being, um, I think, an able college administrator. I think they're essential to being a good parent <laughs> or a, a reasonable spouse, <laughs> all the rest, right? Um, I, frankly, a good citizen. And uh, I, I think it's also essential to being a good teacher. I, yeah. I, I think if you, I mean, we all love our content and we, yeah. you know, and it's just easy to get kind of wedded into the content when you're teaching and forget that you're actually teaching to people who have to be interested in what you're saying. Right. And so that's the prerequisite piece. So yeah. I, I think all of these skills are, are, you know, grounded in the liberal arts. Well, when you say good citizen, that takes us all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. the founding University of Virginia, and the mm-hmm. idea of the liberal arts as a foundation of a functioning democracy, right? Right. You know, and Jefferson certainly had um, some some real, um, um, what's the, 
right phrase. I was going to say blind spot. So he was a it's, deep, deeply flawed racist man. But in mm. that sense, I think he did some important work for American society. Agreed. Um, and then you also mentioned literary criticism. Is yeah. anything in particular, like were you a huge fan of Derrida or the, that you liked to read? Or? I, I, you know, at the time I dove deeply into Marxist literary criticism. Nice. And it was yeah. fun. And uh, especially as a, uh, I'll, I'll just say it out loud, as a kid raised in privilege, it was my, it was one of the, it was, it was my woke moment before there was wokeness as a thing, right? right? And it was just realizing, wow, okay, there are other ways to look at the structure of a society and how money and class and positionality and power influences who wins, gets what, gets to communicate. So it was a powerful way to see into literature. And at the time, it's not like I, I chased it a lot further, but it did give me kind of a classist lens uh, to look at things. And it, it's a, I, I think it's informed to this day the way I look at the way um, science is practiced and applied. Um, who gets to make decisions about things, where the locus of control is, is very important. Um, I mean, hence closing the loop on uh, empowering tribal communities to make decisions. I think you, you're you know, subverting the way things have traditionally been done for the last say, couple hundred years, um, maybe longer. And, you know, it's a uh, it's, it's again, it was a powerful, useful set of lenses to, to see the world. I mean, flawed in their own right, but it was, you know, it was worthy of some good undergraduate head scratching. So Good. Well, I mean, yeah. that, that's just it, right? That, yeah. you know, learning some critique, learning to see the world differently, head scratching that makes you think through things. Again, like, you know, mm-hmm. I've had multiple students go to law school yep. and write me back and thank me for the hard books they had to read, right? <laughs> yeah. Preparation for law school. Yes. Um, well, maybe uh, if you can think back to when you were an English major, maybe a couple of things that you just like really love, what made you excited about being an English major? <laughs> there was there was a, one, one silly one and then I can get into more serious things. I remember one time, you know, one of those dorm room moments where we're all kind of hanging out and I... Um, I re- we realized that pretty much our entire circle of friends was either English majors or psychology majors. And we determined very quickly that English majors were all crazy, <laughs> but they were pretty good with that. Psychology majors were pretty much English majors who had a burning itch to find out why they were crazy. <laughs> so, uh, so they're, Dear English major, psychology major, you don't need to call them. This is not a library show. <laughs> and granted, that, that was, you know, that, that was um, an under, undergraduate musing late at night in a dorm room. I'm sure the air was probably not clear in there either. But again, you're um, speaking but, to the, that experience. You, yeah. You're taking what you're learning into other spaces and continuing the dialogue, right? Yeah. Which is one of the great things about the yeah. liberal arts education and probably yep. other majors as well. Yep. And I think the other thing um, that I, and this is going to sound trite, but the other thing I really liked about it is that I got to read really interesting stuff and a lot of it and call it work. Um, normally, it's what I try to squeeze in in the evenings before I pass out for the night, you know, and just try to read, you know, keep books coming as much as I can. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes it was a lot of slog. There's a lot of pages, much reading to do and lots of hard stuff to digest. Oh, yeah. But you know, the faculty you know, ran us through. There's some literature that I didn't particularly care for. There was some that I just went, wow, that's amazing. And right. so un- uncovering a lot of especially, you know, a- a- authors and corners of the literature landscape that I-, I would never have known existed. And it gave me an appreciation for how much more there is. And ha- I mean, I, it- it's-, it's one of these, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect type things, right? You think you're well-read until you start reading and then you realize how much more there is to read. And you realize exactly how not well-read you are um, and that people who are actually well-read, you right. know, are, are way ahead of you. And right. so that-, that was also a good and humbling moment. And, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I, I remember, I think uh, theory uh, humbled me quite a bit. Mm. But I have a comparable memory, I think, um, when I was at Evergreen, uh, I was in a seminar. We, it was a Russian history and culture seminar, and we had just read, we were reading Crime and Punishment. And <laughs> and a group of us, it's like five yeah, of us. A light reading. Yeah. We went to a coffee shop downtown Olympia and Dancing Goats, and we spent, I think, three or four hours talking about Nietzsche and Freud and modernism and trying to, you know, analyze Raskolnikov through those prisms to what, wow. you know, and, you know, probably got a lot wrong, but mm-hmm. we sat there in a coffee shop talking for hours and it's one of my favorite memories from college. Right? Yeah. And I think also going back to some of your points, you know, engaging in a dialogue, listening to other people, arguing a little bit in a generous way, and then crafting our own sort of theories for these things is just mm-hmm. a valuable experience for the meetings we sit in today. Yeah. Right. Yes. You know, we don't always agree about everything. Right. Right. Most things. <laughs> <laughs> or to be civil and agreeing in disagreement, you know? Yeah. So um, let me ask you, as you moved to, so you went back, you got your geology degree. I, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to assume your PhD is in geology. It so, is. Yeah. Uh, how does, how did training in, in English and liberal arts help you be successful as a geologist, both uh, undergrad and graduate, if you don't mind? Yeah, not at all. Um well, both. I mean, the undergraduate to graduate connection was reasonably seamless for me because I never really completed an undergraduate geology program. I did enough to transfer, at which point uh, UC Riverside looked at me and said, hmm, well, I'm not sure what to do with you. Um, obviously, you've done the whole GE, <laughs> so um, you can't be an undergraduate and um, you're not really ready to be a graduate student yet. So just they, they admitted me for an unclassified undergraduate non-degree seeking year. At, during which I did all kinds of background work and then got admitted as a PhD student with deficiencies. And then that worked out. So the undergraduate to graduate transition for me was pretty seamless. Um, that said, throughout the whole thing, um, one, one, one thing that most scientists hate doing, actually, and ironically, is reading and writing. <laughs> it's one thing that most folks, and I say that with a huge, broad brush, just like I'm going to get pilloried by a psychologist. <laughs> I'll be pilloried by my scientific colleagues as let's well. Let's offend everybody. Yes, let's, I'm, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, but I think in general, that's one of the weak points that many science students have that oftentimes are very good quantitative folks. And then when you ask people to then, okay, express yourself in writing, you know, clearly um, about either the scientific reporting or if you have to write something that is operating in a business context, you know, if you are a consultant or if you're working for a company that depends on your scientific input, you might have to communicate your science to somebody who is not a scientist who might be your superior. And those are skills that are too, there's absolutely nothing soft about them. Um, and that's really hard to do. And uh, most scientists are not particularly good at that. So um, when I, at, at many of the institutions I've taught at, I've been part of building in sophomore level components to um, geology majors that involve um, communication, you know, both not only data literacy, but then also visual communication through, you know, uh, PowerPoint, graphs, charts, et cetera, but then also written communication, both about oneself and about your work. And so as an undergraduate and graduate student, the ability to read and digest and dissect papers very quickly was useful, especially in looking for 
issues of position? Is somebody arguing for a particular case? Are they sweeping something under the rug someplace that they would kind of hope somebody doesn't notice is a flaw in their data? Right. Uh, or are they reaching too far with a conclusion on a data? Are they making a mountain out of a molehill of data? Uh, so textual analysis. Textual analysis, right. precisely, yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, less scientific communication at uh, conferences is sort of frustratingly brief often. And so being able to deliver a very high impact, very um, accurate and concise message is also super critical because typically most scientific talks run in about a 12 to 15 minute um, little blips are almost advertisements. But being able to generate a high impact message quickly and and and, and impactfully is is important. So funny, funny aside, okay. my wife was a biochemist. Yes. And we had poster competitions <clears throat> at Washington State University where we both got our, well, she finished her PhD in University of Missouri, Columbia, but we were both working on our PhDs and they opened it up to liberal arts people. So she'd give me some tips to do a poster. And then I did my poster. She's like, that's a lot of words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we did it way down. Yep. Um, Actually, in poster design, because posters are such a major piece, you know, the big kind of six feet long by three feet wide type posters. Um, that's where my time in the printing industry has actually been very useful because okay. it was the early, we did a lot of page layout work. Um, sometimes with or sometimes for customers and working with graphic designers, I learned a lot of basic graphic design do's and don'ts. And it's been huge in terms of how one decides to lay out a poster. Because you, if you know how somebody's going to read mm -hmm. um, an object like that, how their eyes will transit, right. uh, that then you know where to put important information. Right. And I mean, most scientific posters are horribly designed. You know, they're just this wall of text and little itty bitty figures, and it's like who, who in the right, even standing at two inches away, you can't read that. You have to lean in to read the citation. Yeah. 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 Um. So this is really great. I appreciate it. Yeah. This is fun. Or no, this will be the first and last podcast after listeners hear this and we're both <laughs> summarily dismissed from the university. <laughs> so share with me, um, kind of getting to some of the meat of what we deal with on a regular basis, right? In our roles mm -hmm. uh, is the, the, the intersection of the liberal arts with STEM fields, yeah. right? And you know, the way you view uh, the relationship of the liberal arts with the disciplines you oversee, the way the liberal arts and the gen ed help prepare our students to be successful engineers or chemists or biologists or mathematicians. Yeah, excellent. I think that's um, I, I think this university's superpower is in doing exactly that. Um, I think I think many of the much of the early work in that space predates either of us here at this institution. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was clear to me uh, early on as one of the things that attracted me to come here uh, and to assume this work. It was seeing that so many of these departments have such a, an, an embedded commitment to the interaction, to understanding the full social context and impact of science and engineering work. And so I think the, the groundwork, you know, is deep in the DNA at this institution. And that's that's important. I, I think if you have scientists and engineers that understand that the work that they need to do happens in an economic and historical context and cultural context, everywhere they go, they're going to do better work and they'll do work that will serve the communities better. Also, all communities. Right. And um, it's not accidental, I think, that so many of, grad of graduates from um, CNRS departments are also now um, well placed in state agencies and other places where they have to make a fair number of policy decisions. 
and interact with regulation um, and other industries um, around them. So it, it's, uh, you know, that uh, it seems to me that that's partially why I, I like our focus here, but being very applied, you know, obviously the Cal Poly learning while doing ethos pervades the institution as well. But, the uh, um, you know, if you look at the structure of the place-based learning communities, the like your these students their very first day in college ever is an introduction to indigeneity in the landscape. <laughs> wow, that was not my first day as a science student. I'll tell you that, right? Right, right. Um, but it's a it's great a, example. It, yes, yeah. and it's a, it's a wonderful way to introduce students into understanding that there is a broader social context to what they do, and there's a broader meaning to what they do. And so um, I think that is the intersection that's crucial. And there's also been other fascinating, more technical intersections that I think we have lots to explore yet. Um, you know, your, your art department interacting with various scientific disciplines, digital arts and media interacting with technology. Um, there's many ways that we, and there's probably intersections we haven't even thought of yet. Right. Um, but I think those kinds of connections are not foreign to this university. And um, I, I think that's probably why you're here. That's why I'm here is to do more of that, to help strengthen that and institutionalize it. Right. Yeah. You and I are both interdisciplinary mm-hmm. scholars across, you know, I, I work in STEM fields, you yep. know. Lightly in my own work, uh, I'm sure a fisheries biologists might take issue with some of what I've written, but um, well, yeah, I mean, that's just it, also, is to understand the edges of what we do know and we don't know. I right. mean, that that comes the tricky part in the interdisciplinary work is to understand. Um, like we were joking before about you know, well, worst case scenario, I can always retreat to the English department because I have a bachelor's degree in English. Yeah, no, uh, Dr. no, Rats had told me there's, you a, made that there's joke. a <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's there's a level at which I don't have expertise sufficient right. to yeah. do that, right? right. Um, and so also understanding where the boundaries of what you can do is just as important, right? Because there's it's the knowing enough to be dangerous, and so there's but yes, and, and hopefully before you get to that level, there's a point where you're knowing enough to go get help from somebody who is actually an expert. Right. And so those are the kinds of thresholds that we also hope to instill in our students so they understand where the edges of their own real expertise lie. That's a great way to put that. Right. Mm. Is that, you know, to develop a working knowledge, say, um, of of fisheries biology or geology Mm. and then but but to understand enough to be able to explain the work you're doing, but also to go track down um, the experts and incorporate their their expertise and knowledge as well. so uh, let's wrap up by you telling us uh, maybe some some novels or poetry collections you like since you were an English major. And I, I don't know about you, but one of my strategies for staying sane is I read a lot of novels. Yeah. And that's what I read before I go to bed. Yeah. to keep me everything intact. What about you? What do you like to read or what's a favorite novel from the past? Or Sure. Yeah. I was thinking about that before looking over these questions. I, I am, uh, I'll admit up front, I am not a giant poetry fan. I have uh, leaned. I don't in- want to make any assumptions. I, I, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I've leaned into and studied plenty of poetry and it's a, I, it's a fabulous art form. No dispersion to anybody who, and, and frankly, I kind of, um, I envy people who really thrive in poetry because I have not heard that music yet. You know, but um, good novels and a fabulous narrative tale are something that I like. I, I'm as a, as a class, um, maybe this is not surprising, but I have always been um, a science fiction fan. I like hard science fiction. I've you know dug into fantasy as well and things like that. But I ultimately like things that are potential extensions of places where we actually are. Um, especially enjoy um, things with a bit of a dystopian twist to it because 
it's always nice to know that things like could be worse. Terrible of the summer, for example. <laughs> you know, anything by Kim Stanley Robinson or anything, oh, yeah, where, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, for example, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then also there are stories of great hope. I'm, I'm reading a, a trilogy by, uh, well, is it actually a trilogy? Maybe it's, maybe they lost count and there's more, but by Becky Chambers right now, a lot of her writings, um, you know, exploring kind of different paths through, um, you know, big arcs of space opera, for lack of a better term. It always seems to trivialize the genre, right? But people build these very complex story arcs that, you know, that um, science fiction is is ultimately a mirror on society, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a reflection of of hopes and dreams projected into a place where it's okay, where it's safe to imagine what might be. Um, and that's, uh, that I find is a wonderful escape, you know, as I'm, you know, ready to drift off to sleep. It's a fun to, fun to do that and follow these characters living, you know, very real, uh, conflicts and very real challenges, but in a setting that I don't have to be responsible for in the morning. Right. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had a chance to check out the three body problem yet? Yeah, I have. Yeah. That, that was very interesting. Fascinating. And reading it in the cultural revolution and then everything yes. that falls out of that yes. was, uh, a pretty powerful movie and, and some pretty surrealistic things in there too very really different imagery um again coming out of coming out of a, a, a you know a chinese context it's interesting to see how fiction gets created and how that mirror reflects society especially looking at it through an american and european mirror right on my side right it's like right. wow well, you see things differently center. right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah all right well um was there anything that you wanted to say that i give you a chance to say no no this is a fun conversation um and uh, yes absolutely yeah it's it's always nice to be able to say things openly like this that i know will be you know held against me in perpetuity no <laughs> no i mean this is this is the kind of discussion that i i wish that i hope um doesn't just live in a podcast world. Eventually, these are conversations that we can have live um, with people. And I think it will hopefully helps to uh, humanize us all a bit. Um, This institution is also pretty good about having frank conversations. So this is a wonderful step in that direction. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eric. This was a lie. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it.